Today's Bible reading comes from Zechariah chapter 9. Um, that can be found on page 796 in the Church Bible. So if you'd like to turn to Zechariah chapter 9 and follow along with me now. The oracle of the Lord is against the land of Hadrash, and Damascus is its resting place. For the Lord has an eye on mankind and on all the tribes of Israel, and on Hamath also, which borders on it. Tyre and Sidon, though they are very wise. Tyre has built herself a rampart and heaped up silver like dust and fine gold like the mud of the streets. But behold, the Lord will strip her of her possessions and strike down her power of the sea, and she shall be devoured by fire. Ashkelon shall see it and be afraid. Gaza too shall writhe in anguish. Ekron also, because it ho- its hopes are confounded. The king shall perish from Gaza. Ashkelon shall be uninhabited. A mixed people shall dwell in Ashdod. And I will cut off the pride of Philistia. I will take away its blood from its mouth and its abominations from between its teeth. It too shall be a remnant for our God. It shall be like a clan in Judah, and Ekron shall be like the Jebusites. Then I will encamp at my house as a guard, so that none shall march to and fro. No oppressor shall march again over them, for now I see with my own eyes. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, Your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem, and the battle bow shall be cut off, and he shall speak peace to the nations. His rule shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. As for you... Because of the blood of my covenant with you, I will set your prisoners free from the waterless pit. Return to your stronghold, O prisoners of hope. Today I declare I will restore to you double. For I have bent Judah as my bow. I have made Ephraim its arrow. I will stir up your sons, O Zion, against your sons, O Greece, and wield you like a warrior's sword. Then the Lord will appear over them and his arrow will go forth like lightning. The Lord will sound the trumpet and will march forth in the whirlwinds of the south. The Lord of hosts will protect them, and they shall devour and tread down the slinging stones. And they shall drink and roar as if drunk with wine, and be full like a bowl, drenched like the corners of the altar." On that day, the Lord their God will save them as a flock of his people. For like the jewels of a crown, they shall shine in his land. For how great is his goodness, how, and how great is his beauty. Grain shall make the young men flourish, and new wine the young women. I've been looking forward to Zechariah uh, in this series, but it's been hard to choose, actually, where to take our one little bite out of it as we're doing in these 12 minor prophets. Uh, Because Zechariah is a long book, and it's also difficult. 
Uh, if you've read it before, you may know. Uh, if not, when you sit down to read it later, uh, as is the idea in this series, the first challenge you might have is, is Zechariah's style, or styles, uh, we should probably say, because you see the first six chapters of Zechariah are very heavy with a genre called apocalyptic. Uh, it's similar to Daniel and Ezekiel and Revelation, if you know those books. Uh, strange visions about the future being mediated to Zechariah by an angel that are a bit hard for you and I to kind of sit here and read through and, and make sense of. But then in the middle of chapter 6, the, the genre suddenly changes to, to this, like what we just read, the word of the Lord just coming in verbal form uh, through Zechariah. So, so Zechariah is a curious mix of those two styles, uh, strange pictures and, and spoken word. And as I say, today in chapter 9 we've read, uh, I, I would think the style we're probably more familiar with, at least in this series as it's been, the, the, the word of the Lord kind of style of prophecy. But perhaps I should suggest something for that other style, particularly those first six chapters when you do read it all later. It mightn't be as difficult as it first seems if you keep one thing in mind. Try to focus on the gist of things rather than the fine details. It gets a bit weird trying to read about dappled horses and flying scrolls and a woman in a basket, as you'll see. And if you try to press the details too finely of that picture dream language, then you can end up in all kinds of knots. But if you just step back and just try to size up the basic thrust of each of those visions, it all gets a whole lot clearer. And if you do manage to do that, zoom out from the fine details, that the strange visions actually that run through chapters 1 to 6 convey much the same concepts and ideas as, as the word of the Lord style that comes in the rest of the book. It's just in a different format. Chapter 9 that we've just read catches the big picture of Zechariah, both in the strange visions bit and, and then in the oracles that follow, that the whole book really is just about judgment and salvation. Judgment and salvation, therefore it calls people to, to repentance and hope, just as we've seen in all of these minor prophets, uh, really. God is a God of perfect justice, and so sin will eventually be judged. But so too he is a God of perfect mercy, and, and so he offers salvation from that judgment. And the call for us, therefore, is that we must turn from our rebellion against our God and, and instead uh, become his people. Uh, and when we do come to him like so, then we must just hold fast and trust him and wait for him with expectant joy over that salvation. Uh, verses 1 through 6 at the beginning of chapter 9 here catch the first part of that for us, the, the judgment part of it. The oracle of the word of the Lord is against the land of Hadrach, and Damascus is its resting place. For the Lord has an eye on mankind and on all the tribes of Israel, and on Hamath also, which borders on it, Tyre and Sidon, though they are very wise. Tyre has built herself a rampart and heaped up silver like dust and fine gold like the mud of the streets. But behold, the Lord will strip her of her possessions and strike down her power on the sea and she shall be devoured by fire. Ashkelon shall see it and be afraid. Gaza too, and shall writhe in anguish. Ekron also, because its hopes are confounded. The king shall perish from Gaza. Ashkelon shall be uninhabited. A mixed people shall dwell in Ashdod, and I will cut off the pride of Philistia. 
These are all cities of nations that are adjacent to God's people in Israel. Damascus, verse 1 there, uh, sat to the northeast of Israel. Uh, the land of Hadrach and, uh, and Hamath, in verse 2, were further and a little straighter to the north. Uh, Tyre and Sidon, verses 2 through 4, were, were there off to the northwest of Israel. And Ashkelon, Gaza, Ekron, Ashdod, these are Philistine cities, in verses 5 and 6, to, to, the, to the west and southwest of Israel. Uh, cities uh, of nations around Israel, just as we've already seen in other minor prophets in this series, like, like Amos and Zephaniah, if you remember, uh, judgment is pronounced on the nations around Israel, but by way of the same fact that the judgment will inevitably fall on everyone who does not belong to God. And it will come, despite all earthly appearances, sometimes suggesting otherwise, uh, such as in Tyre, verse 3, uh, who uh, have been storing up gold and silver like dust and dirt. <laughs> Praise God from whom all blessings flow. But although God does let his blessings fall on both the godly and the ungodly in this age, that won't continue for the latter forever. So too the other places listed here. They're not the people of the Lord and the hand of the Lord is against them at the end of the day. And the only sense given in those six verses, if you notice, uh, of their sin is in the last example there of the Philistine cities listed out in verses 5 and 6. Pride. Pride, not in the sense we often use it, of being pleased with something we've done or, or whatever, but, but pride in its biblical sense of being godless. Godless and, and self-sufficient in our life which is self-exalting, really, if you think it through, since pride is to think that we are independent of God, autonomous from God, have no need of God. We neglect him. Reject him is what we do. That's the essence of sin, and it has been since page three of the Bible across all of humanity. And judgment must come at the end of the day for sin. If pride uh, just continues, if people will, will not turn, will, will just determine to remain in their pride, neglecting and rejecting the one true God, then they will inevitably fall under his judgment. In the literal and earthly sense of things, Alexander the Great carried out this judgment against all these places listed out there in those verses about 160 years or so after God warned of it here through Zechariah. But there's more than the literal and the earthly at stake uh, in these concepts. There's an eternal dimension to the judgment of God. And so it's very good then that, that verse 7 opens up hope, hope for such outsiders and, and enemies of God as this, because they could be brought in to the people of God and thereby saved from his judgment. Verse 7, it starts to open up hope. I will take away its blood from its mouth and its abominations from between its teeth. And those two things are used here seemingly to uh, differentiate godless nations around Israel from the people of God. Eating blood and unclean food uh, at this point in time marked those outside God's people. But he says he will purify some of these people, we would presume, it, it seems, and, and he will make them his. Even the, 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 priest, the antecedent here seems to be Philistia, it would seem. Uh, Philistia too, 
it seems, shall be a remnant for our God. It shall be like a clan in Judah. And Ekron shall be like the Jebusites. Because God is going to save ungodly people from judgment by way of his great mercy. And that's the whole story of the Bible in a nutshell, by the way, isn't it? Really. (laughs) That's what he's had to do for all of his people. We all deserve judgment for our sinful pride against God, but God has determined to save some from that judgment so as to, to renew them, recreate them, and have them become his people. And here in the face of uh, judgment, we're told that some will be left, spared that destruction. There'll be a remnant. They'll become like a clan in Judah. In other words, they will come into that people whom God plans to save. Like the Jebusites, it says. The Jebusites were an old Canaanite tribe uh, who were brought into the people of God about a thousand years or so before these words here in Zechariah. God's saying that that's going to happen again. That's going to happen again when when more of his enemies are saved. Verse 8 expands even further on that that great and and radical theme of salvation. God God then intends to draw a a line around his people and, and protect them and keep them safely as his. Verse 8, then I will encamp at my house as a guard so that none shall march to and fro. No oppressor shall again march over them, for now I see with my own eyes. So there's a great sorting coming for people, God says through this prophet Zechariah. Those who will belong to God after that sorting will be brought together as his people and they will be protected by him. And those who remain outside God's people after that sorting will be devastated. And as always, all of this we should be careful to note. All of this is framed with reference to God being the Lord, verse 1. The Lord, that is in, in Hebrew, Yahweh, as we would say today, the personal and one true God who has revealed himself to us through his prophets and servants in Scripture like Zechariah here. This is not a generic warning for people uh, to to worship whatever God that they'd like to identify with. In fact, that's part of the problem here. That's part of the godless pride that demands this judgment. So, So please be sure to make no mistake about what the Bible proclaims, as in verse 1 here. It's the Lord who has his eye on mankind and on all the tribes of Israel. It's his eyes that are on all people because there is no other God. In verse 9 then, this God starts telling us how he'll bring this salvation for these whom he will have as his people. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he. Humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. For God's people there will be sweet salvation and and protection, as verses 7 and 8 
uh, we're hinting at. Zion, verse 9, uh, and Jerusalem are, are synonym, synonyms, if you didn't know. They're used interchangeably. And God's intervention uh, to bring this salvation, this is how it's going to unfold. A king is going to come to Jerusalem, to, to the heart of Israel. He will be the one, verse 10, who proclaims peace to the nations. He will then rule the whole earth. And there can be no question about this. Verse 11. As for you also, because of the blood of my covenant with you, I will set your prisoners free from the waterless pit. This is the promise of God. Thus says the Lord through his prophet Zechariah about two and a half thousand years ago now, the king is coming. The king is coming and this whole matter of judgment and salvation centres on him. Some of the things in Zechariah, by the way, are now past tense for you and I sitting here today. And we can know that they're past tense because... Uh, some of the things prophesied here were quite explicitly fulfilled in the New Testament scriptures. For example, verse 9 there, uh, I'm sure you have uh, seen, uh, clearly foretells of Jesus, doesn't it? This is Jesus uh, coming into Jerusalem on a donkey. And the scriptures tell us in black and white that this is about Jesus, uh, so that we can't miss this truth. So in Matthew 21, for example, we read, Now when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethpage, to the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, The Lord needs them, and he will send them at once. This took place to fulfill, Matthew says, what was spoken by the prophet, saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. That's Zechariah 9, 9 that we've just read. So we know that that part of Zechariah's prophecy is now fulfilled. The king coming to Jerusalem here to proclaim peace to the nations has come in Jesus. But other things foretold through Zechariah aren't so easy to figure out as that. In fact, beyond the style of his book, the bigger reason that Zechariah is a bit hard to understand is because of this difficulty, that it is very hard to figure out the timing of some of the things that you read here. But that's true of the prophets generally, and so we've come across that challenge earlier in our series. God seems to have shown his prophets things from different points in their futures, which all then just got packaged up as to one thing for you and I to try to think through, which makes it hard for us because we've got to figure out which things are still in our future and which things have now passed. And making that time thing a little more complex is that some of these things have both already come and yet are still coming. Because they've started in some sense, but with a much bigger, richer, fuller version still to come. And what that gives us is a now 
but not yet kind of tension as we try to work through and think through the word of God. So, for example, something of verse 10 here has been fulfilled. He shall speak peace to the nations. His rule shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. Jesus has come and spoken peace. And his gospel has been going out ever since, proclaiming peace to the nations. And with all authority in heaven and on earth, having been given unto him, as he said, surely Jesus is ruling even now. And yet the Bible promises a much fuller picture of that that's still yet to come. After the final judgment, uh, still to come in our future, uh, Jesus will rule the nations in peace in an even greater sense. So it's now and not yet at the same time. The kingdom of Jesus has come But its fullness is still coming because the king himself is still coming for the judgment at the end. And, you know, I'm convinced that that much is actually imprinted on people's hearts, that a a cosmic judgment of sin is coming. We all instinctively know. But the wonder of wonders is that the king intervened in that judgment timeline He came early, ahead of that time for judgment. He came early and he came gently and lowly riding on a donkey. Why? To bring about the mechanism first by which sinful people can be saved into his kingdom so that he could proclaim peace where there should actually be judgment. The king came to lay down his life to pay for our sin against him. That's why he rode in on that donkey. And so the king who is yet coming has already come, which is what sets up that whole now but not yet tension of scripture. So from our point of view in all this, sitting here today, our king has already won the victory that gives us peace. And he gives that to us now as as he saves us and makes us his. We may have peace, friends. We may have security in him. And yet doesn't it also come to us with the sure and certain hope of a far greater peace than we could yet know still to come for us? Anyway, if you can handle the different points in time captured by God's prophet and this idea that there is a a now but not yet tension uh, to to this whole judgment and salvation thing, it'll become easier to just step back and catch the thrust of God's prophets in Scripture without getting too far lost. Actually, the basic message is pretty clear. Even in Zechariah, it's pretty clear that in the midst of a coming judgment, there will be a great and glorious salvation for the people of God, which has already broken in, but will sweep in in full measure when the king once again comes. The rest of our text from verse 13 may be leaning into that end of things. For I have bent Judah as my bow, I have made Ephraim its arrow. I will stir up your sons, O Zion, against your sons, O Greece, and wield you like a warrior's sword. Then the Lord will appear over them, and his arrow will go forth like lightning. 
The Lord God will sound the trumpet and will march forth in the whirlwinds of the south. The Lord of hosts will protect them, and they shall devour and tread down the sling stones, and they shall drink and roar as if drunk with wine, and be full like a bowl, drenched like the corners of the altar. On that day the Lord their God will save them as the flock of his people, for like the jewels of a crown they shall shine on his land. For how great is his goodness, and how great his beauty! Grain shall make the young men flourish, and new wine the young women. Judah and Ephraim, by the way, in verse 13, were the two broken apart kingdoms of Israel. It seems that they will be reunited somehow in God's plan by the time of all this. Zion is a metaphor for Jerusalem, as I say, and, and, and it's pitted against Greece. Greece in scripture is a word for the wider world outside Israel. Some kind of battle is being foretold between the people of God and everyone else. We can catch some good and useful things like that when we try to think through the words and the details of the prophecy. We can also get a bit waylaid doing that if we're not careful and if, if we lean in and try to squeeze it too closely. Uh, will God literally come in the whirlwinds of the south, verse 14? Uh, will there really be sling stones involved in this battle, verse 15? Which land will we be shining like jewels in, as verse 16 says? My hunch is that Trying to press the details too far for what we can know can sometimes actually mishandle the genre of prophecy and, and it risks missing its whole point. As I say, step back, as Zechariah is pretty clear. The king is coming with salvation for all his people and judgment for everyone else. If you brave the rest of Zechariah, you'll see that basic message played over, over and over. Don't obsess about the colours of the horses or how the scroll is flying uh, when you trek through the visions part in those first six chapters. That would be my advice. Don't, don't get too obsessed. Don't get lost in the now but not yet tension of some of these things. Just, just stand back one step and just catch the basic message. The world at large has chosen for pride and stands in defiance, therefore, of the one true God. But God has set aside a day for judgment for all those who ignore him and remain in that sin. And yet if we just turn to him, God will make us his people, save us from that doom. And then we can be sure of, of how things will turn out for us in the end when the king comes back. We should wait for him, therefore, with peace in our hearts, knowing that we are now his forever. I think Zechariah catches that basic gospel about six times over in both the picture and in the word forms of this book. And it, and it does that, I think, to both convict some people but to completely encourage the others, depending on where people stand with this message. Because when we catch that big picture of, of Zechariah, the question that should hit us is, is patently simple. Which side are you on in regard to this battle? Are you standing with the people of God 
Or are you of the godless world? On the one hand, of course, we must take action if, if, if we haven't yet sought refuge in God from this judgment. So if that's you, maybe you could let the first half of chapter 9 here kind of, kind of examine your life. Are you fixated on building up silver and gold and, and things of this earthly life? Might you be fallen in pride? Are you neglecting God, rejecting God with the way you live your life? Be fairly warned through Zechariah, the king is coming and for judgment. And there's no sense anywhere in Zechariah that I can see, nor in scripture generally, that when he does finally come for that judgment, that there's going to be any changing of which camp we're in at that point. No, salvation, if we want it, has already been offered by this king. And so the first purpose of this prophecy is to urge us to think through our side very carefully and to do so right now. Do we belong to God, having taken hold of his salvation, or are we still his enemy, awaiting his judgment? On the other hand, if we have been convicted of our sin and, and we have turned and we have found refuge in God, then the rest of the chapter, as I say, should, should rather encourage our lives as, as we wait for the fullness of all these things because we belong to God now and we always will. So the prophecy serves uh, to teach us uh, that we can now simply be content in our circumstances, confident in our circumstances, trusting God as to how it will all turn out for us in the end. Read through the second part of Zechariah 9. How sweetly does God convey to us here that our salvation uh, will be on that day? Uh, it's certain in his language here. How safe and secure we are, verse 16, with our shepherd. How wonderful to think that we will shine like jewels in his crown. Do you catch this language? How beautiful it will all be for us in the end. Does it seem like this now? Well, yes, actually, in a way. But then again, not quite yet. Because uh, we may have tasted already of these things, but, but the glory to come is still far beyond all that we've yet seen. And yet all of this is ours already and forever because the king has already come. In his great mercy, the king has already come to save us to him. So we can have full assurance right now. Catch this theme running through Zechariah when you read it. We can have full assurance. Here in verse 11, the blood of his covenant. Because of the blood of his covenant, we can be sure. This is the promise of God. And Jesus, our King, has already ushered in that promise for us when he let flow that blood for you and I. In fact, if you read it through enough times, you'd end up having to say, I think this is celebratory language in Zechariah chapter 9, celebratory language, and it's celebratory on both sides of all of this. Look at the joy in God's words here about all of this. His pleasure 
over our salvation. It's staggering once you see it. It reminds me of this language in 1 Samuel 12. For the Lord will not forsake his people for his great name's sake because it has pleased the Lord to make you a people for himself. It has pleased the Lord to make you a people for himself. Another one in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. For since in the wisdom of God the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. It pleased God that this king came. If God is so pleased to save us and so clear and comprehensive and covenanted that he will, why do you and I sometimes get so unsure about all this? Have no doubt, brothers and sisters, God is pleased to save for himself a people who will but come to him and trust in him and rejoice with him and therefore glorify him, world without end. As is the idea for this series, just one small bite out of this prophet today, but I'd love for you to read through all of Zechariah later yourself. See if you can catch some of these themes that run all the way through it. And in the Bible study group too, of course, let, let this today just be a primer. For us, reading all through Zechariah, this side of Jesus coming on that donkey, Zechariah is really quite an exciting, extraordinary, uplifting book because it promises, again and again and again, it promises our salvation in the face of judgment. And we know how to receive that salvation. He sent his son to pay the penalty for our sin so that we will be covered when this judgment comes. We know how it's possible then to come into God's people that he's talking about in Zechariah. Only do we come, but surely do we come by way of that salvation that God has granted to us in Jesus Christ, our King. It's all about the King. You will see King Jesus all through Zechariah. It's exceedingly messianic, this book. It's a prophecy of the king pointing us to Jesus, both in terms of what he has done for us and yet will do. Because the king has come, hasn't he? The king has come so that we can now come unto him. And our king will come again with certain and sweet victory of salvation for all who are his by the blood of his covenant. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word through Zechariah today, as short as this bite is in the scheme of this whole book. But we thank you for this small sample. We thank you that we can see here so clearly that, that you must judge those who won't budge from, from their sin and, and, and that you will bring those who will under your protection and you'll do that forever. Thank you that we see here too the joy that you have over all of this, that, that you are so obviously pleased to do this for us, uh, pleased to exercise your mercy. We know we are sinners, Father. And therefore we know that we do not deserve this from you. 
But help us to know how rich is your mercy. Help us to lock that truth in deeper today, Lord. Help us to, 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 to be cognizant of just, just how pleased you were to send us your son Jesus, who was just so pleased and willing to lay down his life for our sin to do this, to secure this salvation for us. And with that being done for us, please then just bind our hearts to yours all the more through our repentance and trust in Jesus, our King. And then fill our hearts with the peace and the joy that we see written on these pages. Because we belong to such a good and gracious King. And in this King Jesus' name we do pray for this, for your glory and for your pleasure and for our eternal peace and joy. Amen and amen.